Good morning. My name is Kip Cohn, and I'd like to welcome you who have joined us in person and welcome all of you who have joined us online on this glorious and beautiful 4th of July holiday weekend. Happy 4th of July. Well, there we go. Okay. <laughs> well, our country did not achieve independence without conflict. And Jesus did not win our freedom without conflict. A lot of conflict, uh, ultimately in his death on the cross. But in his ministry, what was a consistent and persistent area of conflict was his relationship with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and others. During the entirety of his ministry, he was on this kind of ever-intensifying, escalating collision course with the Jewish religious leaders. It was, in fact, the religious leaders who instigated the death of Jesus. Why? Why was there such conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day? Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. In the fourth of the five discourses that make up the book of Matthew, Jesus denounces the religious leaders. This is the last time that Jesus is going to talk to the crowds before he is killed. And in this kind of final uh, discourse with the crowds, he provokes, he's really provoking the religious leaders to go ahead and do what they were planning to do, which was to kill him. But he's going to make clear where the conflict points were at in his relationship with him. It is darkly ironic that the religious leaders are the ones who incited the murder of the Messiah. It's also a challenging lesson for us because it's all too easy to be like a Pharisee. Like the self-righteous and self-deceived religious leaders of Jesus' day, we don't think the problem lies with us. How could it? Instead, we like to think the source of all the problems and tension and conflict is out there. We like to blame everything on the secular culture. The culture is the culprit. Couldn't possibly be us. So we take on kind of an us versus them attitude and start to hate the mission field. If we could, if we could just get rid of secular humanism and their stubborn worship of the expressive self, just like the Pharisees wish they could get, of, get rid of Roman paganism, then life would be grand. It would be grand, wouldn't it? Well, maybe we need to think again about that. Jesus hardly even acknowledged the Roman pagan culture. He was concerned about God's people. His strongest words of judgment were reserved for religious people who thought they were good with God when in fact they were on a collision course with him. Could that be us? Could that be you? How can we know? Well, Jesus defines uh, here in this discourse what it was about the Pharisees that put them on a collision course with him. 
So I invite you to take your Bibles, whether that's a print Bible or a digital Bible, and if you don't have one, you can grab a Bible in front of you and find Matthew chapter 23 on page 804 of that Bible in the rack in front of you. Matthew 23. You know you're a Pharisee when... This morning in our prayer time, someone said, um, I, don't, I don't need a sermon on how to be a Pharisee. I already know how to be a hypocrite. <laughs> okay. no, no one has to teach you. It comes pretty natural. Okay, but maybe we can still learn some things here. Uh, you know you're a Pharisee when, first of all, your faith is all talk and no action. Your faith is all talk and no action. Starting with verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Moses' seat uh, referred really to the position or role of the Pharisees in the synagogue because they were the ones who read and interpreted and explained and applied uh, the Mosaic law for the people. And uh, so they were the, the teachers of the law. We wouldn't today in the church talk about Moses' seat. We talk about the pulpit. Those who are preaching from the pulpit, you need to listen to what they're saying if they're preaching the word. Okay, if they're preaching the word, what they say about the word sounds good, but there's a pretty hard turn here. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Now, one area where the Pharisees were um, excellent at creating cumbersome loads to weigh people down with was in relationship to Sabbath and Sabbath laws. And so the the Pharisees were uh, wonderful at creating rules and laws about the Sabbath. Tradition. <clears throat> which, which all these rules made life pretty difficult and complicated, and it, it didn't really consider individuals or people as much as the law. And so Jesus was always running into conflict with the Pharisees when it came to Sabbath law. So there's one time Jesus goes into the synagogue on a Sabbath, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And the the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they don't care about the man with the withered hand. They're paying attention to see what Jesus is going to do. They were kind of the uh, people with the original watchdog mentality. Let's see if we can catch him doing something wrong. Okay? We don't care about people. Let's make so they're they're watching carefully. And Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts and minds. And so he says this, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they wouldn't answer him. They remained silent. Of course they did. Because the right answer is obvious. So if they answered incorrectly, they looked like idiots, right? But if they answered correctly, they were condemning themselves. So they just kept their mouths closed. And the text tells us Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. 
He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. What was the reaction of the Pharisees, the religious leaders? They went out and plotted on how they could kill Jesus. All this this talk about rules and traditions, and supposedly that was to help people, but they didn't really want to help people. It was all talk and no action. All talk and no action. Is it possible that sometimes we like our traditions and our rules and our ways more than we actually care about people and their hurts and their needs? Do we talk more about loving people than we actually do about loving people? Because it's easier to talk about it than to do it. Actually, with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, we have an excellent opportunity to do more than just talk, but to actually back up our talk with action. For decades, for decades, we've communicated very clearly what we're against. But if we're, if we're truly pro-life and not just anti-abortion, then what we're going to need to do now is, is tangibly, with great effort, uh, support parents, uh, husbands and wives of expected or unexpected pregnancies. How can we do this? Well, first of all, we need to pray this next month for our legislators in Indianapolis as they're going to be working this next month on whatever bill comes for Indiana. So pray for them. But we also have our ministries. You can go out here on the board and see our local ministry partners, Heartline, and also our own ministry here at the church, Room at the Table, where we are very tangibly and concretely supporting Uh, people in this situation. So we want to continue to do that, to put action behind our words. Are we willing to lift a finger to move them? Will we put action to our talk? If we're willing to do it, great. If we're not, then maybe we're like the Pharisees. Secondly, you know uh, that you're a Pharisee when you would rather be praised by people than serve them. You'd rather be praised by people than serve them. Look at verse 5 and following. Jesus, again, talking about the Pharisees. By the way, he's talking to the crowds and the disciples, but there are plenty of religious leaders there. They're listening in, okay? Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries. Those are those little leather boxes with scriptures in them that they tied to their foreheads. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long, the the prayer tassels, kind of these are physical symbols of spirituality. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Me, Jesus says. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It feels good, doesn't it, to be honored and respected by others, to be praised for what you do. But when we're motivated by the affirmation of others rather than actually serving them, then we're becoming like the Pharisees. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just blasted the Pharisees for doing this, kind of playing to the crowd, all right? I, I want my spirituality to be seen and visible and outward and praised by others. Jesus says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Look, I'm giving. <clears throat> As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others, it's interesting, we've been kind of ambivalent about the fact that we don't pass the offering plate in the service anymore. Because on one hand, it's a great tangible act of worship in our worship service. On the other hand, um, it makes it kind of a private act of worship again, like this text is pointing to. Because it, it's, it's not just worship if it happens in the worship service. Anytime we obey God, in obedience, it is an act of worship no matter when it happens. And uh, there's always the temptation when it's a public worship thing to do it for show. But Jesus goes on here talking about them. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Jesus even tells a whole parable about that. That the Pharisee and the tax collector going up to the temple and the Pharisee praying... Oh, God, thanks for blessing me. I'm such a wonderful person. You know, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy over there. What a miserable scumbag. And the miserable scumbag is beating himself on the, on the chest and saying, I'm not even worthy to look and talk to you. Please forgive me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, I'll tell you which one went home justified today. Not the one who said, oh, I'm so great. Listen to me pray. I'm such a great prayer. It's very, oh my, I shouldn't. Uh, by the way, this text is really, you know who this text is aimed at? Bruce. <laughs> oh, I mean me, me, it's aimed at me. Okay, but we're all, we all get invited into it a little bit, all right? Okay, it's, it's easy to, to be flowery in your prayer in front of everybody. You know, come up and pray before the sermon. Do you have a prayer life of your own? When nobody's listening, when there's no crowd to pray in front of? Okay, uh, I'm feeling convicted. We can have the last song and go home now. <laughs> well, that kind of, of, of doing it for the crowd, playing to the crowd, that's not true religion. What is true religion? Well, James tells us what real religion is. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. In other words, to serve people, not just talk about it, but actually do it, to serve others in need, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And where do you really actually, where does the rubber meet the road on that? It's when nobody's looking. What are your choices? What are you doing when nobody's looking? That's true religion what you're doing when nobody's looking. Not when everybody can see, but, but in private. So in this upside-down kingdom of heaven that Matthew is all about, this upside-down kingdom calls us to descend into greatness by loving others ahead of ourselves. I have a hero. I have a hero when it comes to this. When it comes to not living for the praise of people, but to serve him. And her name is Angie Garber. Some of you might remember Angie Angie Garber is my great aunt. She's the sister of my grandmother Cone, so my paternal grandmother's sister, Angie Garber. And Angie Garber, she went and worked, I don't know, almost 50 years out on the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. And she was this little 
kind of humped over. She, in fact, her left side was partially paralyzed because she had polio when she was uh, in her teens. And uh, she was all wrinkled, and, and she was, seems kind of shy and, and giggly, and, and like a child almost she was. And, and yet she served faithfully out on the reservation, and she would um, put on her bonnet like Little House on the Prairie, and she would get in her f- white Ford pickup truck and drive with dust billowing behind her all across the Navajo reservation to go from Hogan to Hogan to Hogan and to go in and to read the Bible and pray with people. And people loved her. I think she's probably... Uh, the Navajos forgot that she wasn't Navajo she, because she spoke the Navajo language so well and she loved, she lived in a three-room, tiny, tiny little house. Uh, her, her, her bedroom was the size of the bed. The, her living room didn't even have room for a couch because it wasn't wide enough for a couch, but she was filled with love and joy. She came to Winona Lake every summer. She, she went to uh, the, some of the conferences down here and I could always expect a knock at the door in the summertime and there was my great Aunt Angie, and I loved it when she visited. Humble, faithful, serving, was not in it for praise or acclaim. Her reward in heaven? I'm glad I know, I'm related. (laughs) I know her. (laughs) She's my hero, because she didn't do it for the, she is no Pharisee, let me tell you what, okay? Now, you don't have to go to the Navajo reservation, all right? We, but, but that attitude of I'm not in it for the praise and acclaim of people, most of what she did, nobody ever saw. But God did. And she said this. She said stuff like this. <clears throat> the issue is not how many people come to know the Lord or not. The main thing is, is your heart for the Lord? If you didn't love the Lord, you couldn't work or serve here. It was tough. It was rough. It was poverty. It was hot and dusty, cold in the winter. If you love somebody, then you are going to be a blessing to them. You don't even feel like you are being a servant to someone if you love them. She loved them because the love of God filled her. Ah, okay. There's your anti-type total non-Pharisee, okay? My, my Aunt Angie, what a wonderful woman. Looking forward to seeing her in heaven again someday. Are you, looking, are you looking to be affirmed by others? Does that prop you up? Or do you find joy in the opportunities to demonstrate the love of God for you to others through service? If you're, if you're looking to be affirmed, if that's what motivates you and drives you, then maybe you're like a Pharisee. Next one. Uh, (coughs) You might be a Pharisee if your life doesn't offer gospel hope. If your life doesn't offer gospel hope. Verses 13 to 15. Woe to you. Okay, there's the first of a bunch of woes. Okay, And, and woe is an expression of deep sorrow and grief. Of intense misery. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Is Jesus trying to make friends there? (laughs) Wow. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. The the Pharisees had created kind of a spiritual caste system. 
But the problem was that even if you somehow attained to their spiritual club, you, you, you somehow achieved their status, you, you made it, you know, you were able to, to work their system, at least externally, it, it appeared that you were keeping all the rules and the law. The problem is once you did all of that, you weren't actually saved. Because the Pharisees were so focused on their system of righteousness that they were blind to and missed out on Messiah, the one who actually can save. And, and so they made disciples, but they made disciples who also missed out on Messiah, and, and there was no salvation in that. No room for grace or mercy. We have good news to share. We have good news. Salvation isn't something you have to earn. It's a free gift that comes by grace through faith. We believe this. But do our words and our lives reflect it and show it? Do they offer pathways for people to connect with this wonderful gospel good news message? Or are our words and lives an obstacle slamming the door in the face of anybody who would want to know the truth? Let's just take one piece of this good news. A piece of this good news that we have to share is that God is a forgiving God. So much so that he took upon himself in Jesus on the cross the punishment for our sins so he could justly forgive us. He's a forgiving God who forgives us when we put our faith in him. And so we ought to be forgiving people, sharing the good news of forgiveness, but also living it out. Not in anger and bitterness and harshness and, and division and disunity and, and going in different directions. Instead, we as God's people need to reflect the good news of the gospel by being willing to forgive. Our, do our lives reflect the gospel or are they like barriers to the gospel that's why we're, we're looking at these blessed practices we begin with prayer for our neighbors or our colleagues or our relatives and then we listen we engage in conversation with a desire to know and understand and then we eat or show hospitality that's where relationship really goes deeper and then we serve we find ways to serve and then finally we share our story of how god has changed our lives and the big story of the gospel Does your life reflect the gospel or does it hinder people from knowing the gospel? If it hinders, then maybe you're like a Pharisee. Next, you know you're a Pharisee when your focus on non-essentials causes you to miss what really matters. This is where it really hits us, I think. Woe to you, blind guides, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. My mom said I could never call anybody a fool, but I said Jesus did it. <laughs> what would Jesus do? <laughs> I can feel her frowning at me right now. <laughs> okay. 
Which is greater, the gold or the, te- uh, or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it, and anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the, the one who dwells on it, and anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Why are you making stuff so complicated? Just stick with the basic truth, he says in other places. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. He actually kind of summarizes all of this in another place where Jesus says, you have let go of the commands of God. That's the primary essential things. You've let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Secondary things. Maybe good things, good things, but secondary, and you flipped them. Jesus goes on in verse 23 of our chapter. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Piece of cumin, piece of cumin. (coughs) But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. We get concerned about a lot of secondary things. Now remember, secondary things aren't non-issues. It's not that they're completely unimportant. It's just that they're not as important. And when we get totally focused on them, we, we forget to practice what's actually really, truly important. What are some examples of secondary things? Pews or chairs. color carpet it matters it matters but is it as important as grace and mercy and justice i don't think so um clothing style uh any number of political issues that we get hot and bothered about educational choices and the list goes on and on and on again these aren't non-issues they're not unimportant it's just that when we get consumed by them we can forget what actually matters he lists it what matters we 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 can easily ignore the primary things justice what about the oppressed i'm not a big fan of viewing all of life through the paradigm of oppressor and oppressed but there are people who are oppressed What are we going to do about that? What's our responsibility to that? How do we engage that with God's love and mercy and grace? Mercy to those who are suffering and struggling and poor in our midst. And faithfulness. Faithfulness to God, first of all, but also faithfulness to our marriage vows, faithfulness to our word, faithfulness to the mission that God has given to us. I love this phrase. It's a very well-known phrase. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. But you got to know what the essentials are, right? Those things, we make sure that we focus on them. Jesus is completely God and completely man. He died in our place for us. He resurrected bodily from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he rules, and he's coming back someday to establish his eternal kingdom. And he's called us to belong to him by grace through faith and to be a part of his mission. Those are the essentials. We need to have absolute unity on it and focus on it. In non-essentials, give some elbow room, some elbow room to people. 
but in all things demonstrating love, charity, consideration, kindness. Next one. You know you're a Pharisee when your beliefs haven't changed your heart. Woe to you, teachers of the law, the Pharisees and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You know what curbside appeal is? That's when everything looks great from the curb, right? That house is beautiful. Just uh, don't inspect the foundations. Don't look for mold or mildew. Don't check the plumbing or the wiring, because that's all rotten. Jesus, Jesus was saying, hey, these Pharisees, they have curb appeal. But, but don't look at the heart. It's all external. It's all facade. Okay, I'm going to give you this illustration, and I've given it to you dozens of times before, and I'm going to give it to you dozens of times again. We are not a new car showroom. We're, okay, the beautiful BMW on the left that is not us, okay? Uh, where everything's shiny and new and perfect. That's not what the church is. We're not a new car showroom. Instead, we're what's on the right. We are a, a, a repair shop. And in a repair shop, you got to lift the hood. you got to get your hands in and get it dirty to fix things. And, and, and that's what we're about, is not putting out some kind of a shiny, clean, perfect got it all together facade, but instead we're the kind of people who say God's redeemed us, called us to himself to remake us in the image of his son, and it's work and it's a process, but we're in it together and we're going to get our hands dirty. Let's open the hood and take a look. Ah! We're going to have a series in the fall called Essential Church. I'm going to say a lot more about this then. Finally, you know you're a Pharisee when you think you're better. Microsoft Word wanted me to add more words. Better than what? No, I'm just going to stick right there. When you think you're better, period. Verse 29, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. How ironic. You think you're better than they are? You say, oh, we wouldn't have murdered the prophets, and yet you're about to murder the greatest prophet of all, the Messiah himself. Give me a break. You think you're better. What a joke. I'm, I'm happy for my spiritual heritage. I talked about Aunt Angie. I got a great Aunt Angie. Glad to be part of the Cares Fellowship. But, but that doesn't make us better than anybody because I'm just like everybody else, a sinner who needs God's grace and forgiveness. I have to live in dependence on God. <clears throat> this whole message sounds rather harsh, doesn't it? Is Jesus really like this? Wow, confrontational. 
What was he doing here? Well, he's doing a couple of things. One thing Jesus was doing is he was daring the religious to do, uh, leaders to do what they were planning to do, kill me. Come on, that's what he means at the end. Obviously, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. They killed the prophets, you kill me. Come on, do it. Just do it. Like, like the crucifixion was a surprise to Jesus? I don't think so. He was saying, do it. I know what's in your heart. Do it. Come on, finish it. I dare you. Was that mean? No, it was love because Jesus came to die. He came to die for us in our place. But that's only part of what Jesus is doing. He is, he is provoking them to finish the job. And in and, and, and doing that, they're actually going to be completing God's sovereign plan. But also he's calling out to them for repentance, for repentance, because in love he knew that they would never come to him for salvation and receive the life he wanted to give them if they first didn't recognize that they were self-righteous and thereby self-deceived. And so he's trying to break through that self-deception and self-righteousness, shatter it and get to their hearts and pull them to him. But they would never come to him until they recognized that they needed him. So what's the cure? What's the cure for being a Pharisee? Well, look at the end of the chapter there. Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Signing off until my return. What's the cure? If I were Bruce Barlow, I would have brought up a box of chicks. <laughs> you gotta, I want to bring you to myself, but you have to humble yourself and recognize that you're like a little chick that can't defend yourself, that can't live on your own, that... You, you need to come to me and come under my wings and humble yourself and find hope and life in me. So, so what's the cure? It's certainly not working harder. That would be, that would be ironic to Pharisees. Here's the answer. Try harder. Do better. Here's a list of laws and rules I'm going to give you to not be a Pharisee. Wow. Ironic. No. Here's, here's, here's the cure recognize how desperately, desperately we need Jesus Christ. And come to him. His wings are open, if you will, open wide to receive us, to, to come. But come to him as a chick, totally dependent and needy, and find life in him. Musicians are going to come now, and we're going to sing a song. And I'm going to invite you to stand right now, and as we sing this song, it's a chance in your heart to say, God, I don't want to be a Pharisee. Give me clean hands and a pure heart, but that only comes from recognizing how desperately I need you. And as you sing, may it be a crying out of your heart to Jesus, I need you, I need you, I need you. Help me not to be self-deceived or self-righteous or any of these things that we talked about today, but instead come to you like a chick to a mother hand, finding life and hope under your wings of love. Let's sing this together. <laughs>